0: To the Whose Body Is It podcast, I'm your host, Isabella Malvin. For those who don't know me, I'm a birth worker, a life coach, hypnotist, and a former liberal feminist turned radical truth teller. On this podcast, I expose the forces at play attempting to control our minds and bodies, such as transgender ideology, pornography, prostitution, and so much more. Together, we'll untangle patriarchal lies as you listen to jaw-dropping interviews with women from around the world. Warning, while listening to this podcast, you might find yourself triggered or perhaps notice where you've been biting your tongue on the issues that matter most to you. In my coaching and hypnosis, I help women and men stop getting triggered by every single thing, cultivate resilience, stop unwanted behaviors, and increase self-confidence. You can book your first session at whosebodyisit.com and you can find that link in the episode show notes. And I just want to say that it's because of your endless support that I'm able to interview amazing women, get their stories out and produce regular episodes for you. So with that being said, please like, comment, and subscribe to my channel on YouTube. And if you're listening in, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And also consider making a financial contribution via the link in my show notes. You can also visit my activist sticker shop my pro-woman stickers have the power to intercept transhumanist programming. So take a photo of your stickers out in the wild and tag me on Instagram at whose it? Without further ado, let's get into this week's story. Today, I speak with my friend Adelaide Meadow. Adelaide is a traditional midwife, functional medicine practitioner, and women's movement specialist. Adelaide's work challenges everything we've been taught about the female pelvis. Adelaide believes that pelvic health is the apex of women's well-being and discusses why women need to prioritize it, even when our doctors, yoga teachers, and other wellness experts won't. According to Adelaide, this is not just a matter of health. This is a feminist issue. As young girls doing ballet and gymnastics, we're instructed to tuck our tailbones and suck in our ribcage, advice that contradicts our natural physiological alignment. This continues into adulthood, where we're often told to just train and move like men. Whether we're squeezing into skinny jeans and high waisted leggings, or constantly sucking in our bellies, the message is clear be smaller, and take up less space. We discuss in depth how our female socialization undermines our vitality and why taking back our pelvic health can mean taking back our power. And Adelaide has just come out with a new course. It is called Strength Training for the Female Body. You can use the discount code is It through October 21st. The link to the course is in the episode show notes. Adelaide, I'm so excited to talk to you about all things pelvic health. I felt so validated when I started like listening to your talks and your um, your IGTV lives and your infographics because I always knew yoga was bad for women. <laughs> Just intuitively, like, that was my first ping, and I was like, oh, yes, finally, some woman is talking about how fucked up pigeon pose is, like, and why, no matter how many years I do yoga, it never feels good, you know? Or, like, there's this, like, very male, like, resistance-based, like, um plight. The more it hurts, the, the better the result. Like, no pain, no gain, module, no like, pain. sort of. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So there was that. And then we, and then I did your, um, your like online coaching series, which was a lot of education around, um, like liquid consumption and liquid intake and how that was affecting, you know, my, my comfort, my frequency of peeing, my appetite. And I started to come to all these realizations on how like, you know, the pelvic health and liquid consumption was like actually in tandem with a lot of my, my history of eating disorders. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, this episode is going to hopefully, you know, you're going to be dropping a lot of truth bombs and I hope women make connections uh, with, you know, uh, female liberation, you know, prioritizing our comfort, all the lies of the medical paradigm, the exercise industry, the diet industry, mm-hmm. all of these industries that um, really prey on our, our fears and our, um our ignorance about about um the innate wisdom of our body. So maybe would you just kind of start off by saying like how you started doing what you're doing now, like your kind of your trajectory into this work. Absolutely. And you just it's uh, touched
1: on so many things that I want to like pull the threads on. Um, but my name is Adelaide Meadow and I'm a physiologist and I attend home birth and I run a well-woman care clinic where I see women for all of their public health concerns outside of the medical model. And just a few thoughts, and I know you asked me, like, where did this start? And I'll get to that. But one thing I really want to just begin by sharing is that our health, and I know we can have a lot of lenses where, you know, people will say like, oh, health begins with the, with the gut, or health begins with your nervous system regulation, or whatever. But I have the lens, and those are valid, and I've learned a lot from people who have those perspectives. But from my perspective, I believe that pelvic health, specifically for women, is the apex right, of our overall physiological health and well-being. And the reason behind that is our sexual and reproductive capacity as mammals is the reason for existence. So every other physiological system, be it our nervous system, our digestive system, our circulatory system, our endocrine system, whatever it is, they're all fundamentally in service of our sexual and reproductive systems, Mm -hmm. right? And they exist in order to serve those systems, right? So I like having pelvic health as sort of an anchor or a way that we really come back to the basics in the, the sort of broad realm of like holistic or integrated health. And I think so often it's not even on the table, right? So often women come and say, oh, I have back pain, I better work out more, or, oh, I have IBS, like I better not eat dairy or whatever it is. And no one is actually looking at the structural function of our female physiology and how it relates to the unique female pelvis. And mm-hmm. I would argue that that is where I want all of us to begin our um, our care for ourselves as women, is orienting in what is unique and physiologically the center of the female body, right? And by beginning there, rather than that having be the end point, I think we just see far better health outcomes. And that's really what I'm here to be interested in. And then the other thing that I also thread that I is sort of underpinning my work rather than sort of this baseline of pelvic health and its importance overall is the fact that our pelvic health and our women's health is a feminist issue. And so therefore things that are harming our women's health, right, are almost always targeted in my opinion, or have a profound effect on our pelvic health overall. The fact that we are taught to sit, stand, walk, move, breathe, work out, and eat, and do virtually everything that supports our body in a way that is often contraindicated to our female physiology is all based on largely having our bodies look and appeal to the male gaze, right? And then having that sort of walked back down to the nitty-gritty, we're learning and practicing in the name of our integrative health, nonetheless, practices that are largely not centered on female pelvic integrity Mm -hmm. and that then really quickly becomes oh wow well why am i doing this and who did teach me how to do this and is this based on women's liberation is this based on female comfort is this based on on true long-standing women's health in the way that we define it individually for ourselves and so often the answer is no right And so very quickly, this, you know, it starts to fall apart, I think, when we're looking at a lot of our sort of integrative health culture, which I've been very steeped in the sort of holistic health world for now over a decade. And the center of my work is really bringing that back to what is observable physiologically for by women for themselves rather than through an outside assessment model, Coming back to just a basic and cursory physiological understanding that I think we should all have on our bodies that doesn't just include our cycle tracking, but also includes our structure and how then all of the systems that really are there for us to understand, right, how they are all informing our overall pelvic and reproductive health. And when we begin from that lens, I think we ultimately end uh, with just more female-centered,
0: body-centered, liberatory health practices. Mm. The first thing that comes to mind that I think women can relate to is just the sucking in the lower belly, like that flattening. That that it's, it's for me, it's totally subconscious. I don't even realize that I'm doing it, and I'm tucking my rib cage. And I also did ballet for a number of years, and you know the the it was always tuck tuck in the tailbone and like flatten the rib cage. Um, and I have a kind of a distended, particularly kind of um, prominent rib cage. And I remember my teachers always just kind of like trying to just t- tell me to suck it in and still throughout the day, no, many times a day, I have to check in. Okay. Where am I holding tension? And and most, I think for, for me, like the, the neutral zone is that clenching is that tightening of the pelvic floor. That's my, that's my neutral. So I always have to kind of like check in and kind of return to an actual neutral kind of place. But yeah, I mean, what you're suggesting you know, is really not something small, right? Like suggesting that all women feel comfortable releasing their bellies and the fat on their bellies and the extra skin on their bellies and let it just kind of pour over um, or, you know, stop wearing binding clothes that kind of attempt to suck it in. Like it's, there's been so much repetition and practice to, uh, yeah, the pathways are set to kind of do the exact opposite because of our like conditioning and the marketing, everything that you, you touched on. But, you know, your work is, you know, saying obviously that it can be undone and it can be healed and redirected with, with education and practice and exercises that are supportive of female um, pelvic health.
1: Yeah. And I think that this is where, and I do just want to sort of speak on your example. So I bet there's a lot of women here that grew up dancing, right? Just because how many little girls are put into ballet, like so many, Right. Or even just grew up in, you know, in sports or gymnastics or whatever, where um, you were largely told to tuck your tailbone under and suck in your low belly. Mm-hmm. Which that combination, I like to call that the prolapse starter kit. And especially if we start that before we even oh, go through, right? But it prolapse we... starter
0: kit. Oh my god, it totally is.
1: Okay, so I have my handy dandy Oh my box. gosh,
0: you just whip it out, out of nowhere. Okay, for anyone who's just listening, uh, Adelaide has just pulled out um a skeletal uh a model. But I'll talk through it as well. So if you're just listening to the podcast, right? But if you
1: imagine that a female anatomical neutral is where we what we would call an anterior tilt, and I of course say that even the fact that we call this an anterior tilt means we're using male bodies as the standard, right? Because that would mean an uprighted pelvis is considered posterior, but this is actually, uh, you know, this is a posterior tilt for female bodies. The idea of having this anterior tilt, what that therefore is allowing for, is the floor, sort of the bottom pelvic bones, which are your inferior pubic symphysis and your ischial tuberosity is that they can actually sit below the pelvic organs. They can sit and support from a structural bony perspective, the bladder and the uterus. Mm-hmm. And then they have that support. And then we allow the lower belly, that lower abdomen, which I often like to refer to as the frontal pelvic region, because even the concept of calling it the low abdomen emphasizes the idea that there are fundamentally abdominal muscles as being the primary structure in the region, which the abdominal muscles are definitely not the primary or even the secondary. I refer to them as the tertiary, tertiary structure in that low pelvic region, Right. But so calling the low abdominals, even that to me feels like misogynistic language, but in that area, if we are in this posterior pelvic tilt, so we're literally tipping our organs away from their bony support and then sucking the abdomen back, then we're actually pushing them into the body and just creating pelvic descent, right? We just allow for the arrangement and the force that's held into the pelvis to be moving our organs into a less supported position. And I, if we ever were wondering, this is a feminist issue, holy smokes, we are currently at, and you know, I don't, you know, know this exactly as of this year, but an approximately 40% hysterectomy rate for American women by the time they reach 75. Right. And so I just like to always compare that if we're doing complete hysterectomy. So that's complete and total medical castration, the removal of our sexual organs for up to 40% of American women. Imagine if we cut the dicks, I mean, excuse me, cut the balls off that many American men, like 40%. Like clearly we would then see that as um harming our overall liberation, right? And that's currently what is occurring. And why this is occurring is largely due to prolapse, largely due to the descent of our pelvic organs and repeat C-sections, which is a whole other thing of why can't we work our babies? Well, if we're told to constrict our pelvic floors for 25, 35 years, I, you know, and I don't think we need to do, I want to actually, you know, I'll actually put a pin in that because I don't want to sort of pathologize. And I do think babies are really, you know, designed to be born and it just is adding stacks and stacks and stacks against us, right. Within all of our, all of our work. Right. And then like, oh, I don't want to gain too much weight with pregnancy. Right. So I'll do all this abdominal work and do all this pelvic floor conditioning. That's not actually based in physiological birth because no one's preparing you for that anyway because they're just gonna section you, right? If, if it doesn't happen easily. And then if you have a section, the likelihood that you're gonna have a hysterectomy later in life skyrockets, mm-hmm. right? And we just start breeding all of this, that guess what? These are basic female pelvic functions. And we can talk about it, and I think we do talk about it culturally from a lot of different perspectives of like, you know, what's happening with obstetrical violence or like, you know, how women are fear coerced into childbirth and all of their different choices there. But I think we're rarely actually talking about it from a physiological perspective and from how everything in our lives, everything in our anatomy is structurally designed to prepare us for childbirth, truly, whether or not you have children. And so therefore, being able to support those structures is integral for our public health overall, because our public health overall and the structure of our bones and the placement of our organs is designed for reproduction. And that is just the design of being a mammal. Right. And even that, I mean, I think within our feminist culture where we've departed so much from, I mean, women are having children on average of 10 years later. I think there is a value in many ways in our culture now that exists on feminist liberation and not having children. I think that has sort of come up in the last 50 years. And in that, I'm not really really here to sort of talk on that point per se, but I think wrapped up in that is an inherent departure from the design of the body, not that- we're saying that you need to have children in any way, but ultimately as an adult human female, that is the actual design of your physiology and supporting that design on every single level is the purpose of every single other physiological system in your body. Right. And if in our departure from this sort of childbearing continuum as a culture that has arisen along with liberal feminism, we also have, I think, departed from really the, um, you know, I mean, this comes into the trans stuff so much as well, like really departed from the actual structural realities that need to be identified and supported for optimal female health, right? Because those structures are designed for reproduction, right? We need to support that capacity, um, no
0: matter whether we're actually having children out of our vaginas or at all mm hmm. Mm-hmm. oh I couldn't agree more with everything you just said and my, the image that comes to mind is like now we're living in an age where just we're like we're just like Mr and Mrs potato head like you can just kind yeah. of together and plop and rearrange it's whatever you want anything goes whatever you say is powerful or empowering it, it is um but what you're what you're speaking to what I think like just more evidence that the all the transpharmological kind of takeover of women and males bodies um is it's it's So anyone who knows anything about physiology, right? Knows that like not one single part of the trans pharma takeover is optimal for mammals. Like in any way, shape or form, like there is nothing optimal psychologically, spiritually, uh, physically, It's, it's just absolutely nothing in that whole arena that can be justified scientifically in, in any way shape or form that it is for the well-being but that's the lie that's you know all for the well-being um and you know like we've talked about this uh and i think i think a lot of people listening maybe maybe you know have heard this point before but as far as sexual education and women's health goes and um, you know we were just kind of making leadway in being able to name the parts of our bodies like you know distinguishing between a vagina and the vulva you know and still like you know my experience working with you there was so much more i didn't know like there's just there's so much still to learn about female pelvic health our reproductive systems everything um and we're just kind of going backwards so i think just as cycle tracking you know learning about your your um your cycle opens up so much. For me, like pelvic health, it was like another layer like of the onion just kind of being revealed, the gaps and the lies. And it's not, and just like birth education isn't like about the birth. It's about like society. It's about boundaries. It's about discernment. It's about making choices. It's like all about these, it's all about these other things. I find that the same thing about the work that you're doing. It's not just about physiology. It it kind of has these ripples into um into how we live our lives and how we center our female bodies in our lives,
1: and I love that you saying that and feeling like it is another layer. Like where we can peel back the layers on like birth culture, and I know that you know we met in you know in radical birth keeper school years ago, right? So outside the system midwifery school, we both already been attending births and both had you know seen the horrors and been you know uh, we're ready to you know do something different and like that's just one layer and i feel like for me i came into attending births and this is sort of more coming back to what you were saying before so i you know i personally um you know had a really big healing crisis which i think is really common for a lot of people but i was very very sick and injured and was in the hospital for a number of years due to a traumatic accident where i and been many you know aspects i you know was struggling but i specifically broke my back, my hip and my pelvis, and then had such severe trauma that I bled every day for a year. Right. And even just thinking about that. So I had other, I had severe head trauma. I had brain bleeds. I had a lot, I broke my neck. (laughs) So I had a lot going on, but what I think, and this is what no one spoke to me about during that time where I spent, I spent about five years really like putting my body back together after that accident. Um, And by the way, I feel great now and had no reparations and no surgical reparations despite all of those fractures. So if you ever want to the deep healing of the body, be sure to check out my work. But the thing that no one ever spoke to me about is I was like, why am I still bleeding? I said, you know, I bled, I had my menses every day for over a year. And what, you know, I now know, but no one cared. They're like, oh yeah, that can just happen. That was essentially the information that I was given. As opposed to your body is in such a state of um, healing, truly, that it would be, you know, if I, I I couldn't conceive a child, right? It would kill me if I got pregnant probably at that time, right? It was not, you know, I was not in a state to be able to support that. So it's just an intrinsic um, sort of response to that, that just elevated healing to, you know, not ovulate essentially and just be forever sort of spotting and bleeding that entire time. Mm -hmm. And, but somehow then the idea that I would need to heal and recuperate my pelvic health after having that experience was never brought into any of my healing. And this is after, you know, I would be in, you know, between OT, PT, cognitive therapy that for, you know, all day, five days a week, like it was my whole life being in rehab and no one brought this up to me, not to mention my hip and low back hurt. Constantly, and I had painful sex and just repetitive vaginal infections oh for years gosh. and years during this time. At my worst, I had a chronic yeast infection that lasted three years. Right where at when you know I finally was in a, you know I was going to the gynecologist and trying to figure it out, and they gave me Diflucan, which is supposed to be the like the one dose, like you know, knock it out of the park. And they gave me eighteen consecutive doses of Diflucan, and it didn't touch oh it. Gosh. Didn't touch it. I had it all your over gut, my gut. Your gut. Oh my gosh! After that, oh, please, please, please. what was I? Oh, your gut after that. But even oh like gosh. so many pharmaceuticals as a result of being in the hospital, right? It just had been destroyed. And where that was actually showing up for me was in my pelvic health. It wasn't that I like you know my you know I didn't have some of the classic like digestive symptoms that other women have, and I didn't have and like I had other. I wasn't in good health overall, but the apex for me was like, I have, I'm in chronic pelvic pain. I can't have an orgasm and I have chronic vaginal infections and irregular cycles and my hip and back hurts all the time. So it was like, for me, all centered on the pelvis and none of my care even touched on that. It was like, oh yeah, you better, you know, do some more squats essentially. And like your glutes and go to Pilates if your back hurts and sorry, the diflucan didn't work. guess you should you know, revamp your whole diet and you doing an elimination diet because you have, you know, candida overgrowth and you should, you know, cut out all these foods, right? That was pretty much what was given to me, even from the holistic health route, right? And for me, none of that actually was significantly effective, right? Um, I will say, of course, there's, you know, a dietary aspect, and I will, I want to say that there wasn't a dietary aspect to my, you know, healing in that acute time period. However, um, you know, that, for me at least was still very steeped in like weight loss culture, food elimination, wanting to be skinnier, not feeling like I could move or work out just because of my structural injuries. Like it wasn't, it was like, oh, how can I heal, how can I heal my, you know, pelvic infections while also I would love to lose 15 pounds. You know, it was always just sort Mm of built into the assumed goal for my overall female pelvic health. So Fast forward, you know, I've, I know, as you mentioned, I've taught yoga for over a decade now. And I also, you know, did deep studies into anatomy and physiology. Then I was on a licensed midwifery tract and took some courses into that, you know, and then I switched into non licensed midwifery tract. I also did, oh my gosh, I can't even name. I mean, so many trainings over the years, so many trainings in birth physiology and, uh, you know, myofascial release, tongue tie, massage therapy school, like, just an, a deep dive into physiological learning. And over and over and over again, what I saw was a lack of emphasis and a lack of differentiation between male and female bodies. I just, and so now this is what I teach about, right? And largely where, you know, I have found, you know, my information just to be, you know, sharing that. I have a really wonderful teacher. Her name is Annie Hoffman. She's a Iyengar yoga teacher who I've studied with for, I mean, probably 12 years now who really taught me the skill of observation. And then I had the incredible privilege of being able to see as a yoga teacher and then teaching the courses that I teach now, just see thousands of women's bodies in motion over the years, right? So every week I would go and see hundreds of women's bodies. And I would just get to look at women's different pelvic alignment, right? And then I had gone through this whole healing journey and had, you know, just reading books. I mean, I remember I read Rosemary Gladstar's book, like cover to cover on just like herbal public healing for women, but then also largely just trial and error through my own personal experience. Right. I've also really appreciated the work of Tammy Lynn Kent. Um, I did an apprenticeship with uh, Dr. Patricia Jenkins, who's a public floor PT. And so I've just, you know, done a lot of different training over that time. But mostly what I saw work was when women actually began to address what structural discrepancies might be limiting their capacity for pelvic health and healing overall, right? Which largely have to do with alignment, breath, posture, and movement patterns, right? Kind of the big big hitters. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I got even more into, well, why, why is everyone misinformed about this? Like, why are we still not having accurate female genital anatomy in our textbooks in medical school? Why was I never taught where my, you know, um, you know, the full innervation of my clitoris and how it relates to my cervix? And I know there's a lot of women that are now doing that work. And then how that more broadly relates to our overall pelvic health, it so quickly can come back to sort of an anti-feminist agenda, essentially, where the lack of information that we have and the information that we do have that's inaccurate and the emphasis on having women look and feel a certain way and be able to do X, Y, Z things that are very rarely based on female health, health, comfort, ease in childbirth or pleasurable sex. Right. Then like so quickly we can start to see this as a feminist issue, in my opinion, right, where our physiology is just not brought into the mainstream. And it's certainly not even brought into our medical literature in many capacities. And in my experience, which was, you know, quite extreme with significant vaginal infections and, you know, all these other things, I was essentially able to heal at least that, you know, my vaginal microbiome in like six to eight months, right. With it being markedly better in three weeks, right. After years and years of dysfunction and pain, And now, you know, the fact that I talk to so many women with crippling sciatic pain, SI joint pain, low back pain, right? Bloating, pelvic pain, painful sex. And it all can, you know, the beginning of all of that is how are we structurally, Mm -hmm. right? And are we just because of how we've been taught to hold ourselves and to look and to fit into our skinny jeans? Is it ultimately harming our overall physiological function? And in my opinion, the answer is yes. And so we can do all of the juice cleanses we want and rid our body of candida and, you know, do all of these other, um, you know, sort of holistic health aspects. But if we can't support the structure on a very basic level, because what we do all day, every day, which is sit, stand, walk, move and breathe are full, fundamentally harming us. It, this is why we have just these, I believe these ongoing pelvic health concerns. And then the prolapse starter kit, Right. And if you're not familiar with prolapse, right, this is where we have a, the movement of our pelvic organs from a more supported to a less supported position within the pelvis. And eventually it can result in the full externalization of the pelvic organs. I have a woman now who I'm working with who's 73, who her bladder is external, right? Which like, oh my gosh, can you imagine? Like that's horrible. And she only had one child, but her entire life, she was an athlete, right? Right. And now she can't even, she can barely walk. Right. And she was a oh very rigid pelvic posture. And, you know, her, the only option she's being given giving now is uh, a complete and total hysterectomy and a pelvic lift that involves like a pelvic ligament lift that involves mesh. And it's this very, very major surgical intervention with no follow-up. And in my, and she's already had one and it failed. Right. And this is an extreme case, but well, why did it fail? Well, she had no education around what would be required to support its success, which all comes back to, in my opinion, the female physiological function and understanding that and supporting that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, I don't know if that really like answered your
0: questions. I feel like I maybe left a few like loose threads there, but oh, if there's yeah, that was great, and I and I I learned more about I uh, yeah I there were gaps there there are parts of your story that that I yeah I you I I'm just learning now for the first time it's really um, remarkable and the story of that older woman that you're supporting that is really heartbreaking and and yeah I guess not not actually that uncommon I've heard of the, the lifts but I think I mean it's a euphemism like it's just a lift you know it just sounds so simple like just a little.
1: Which almost always happens with a complete and total ovarian hysterectomy, like that's left out. The idea that you're gonna do you know like a pelvic like a pelvic lift without a hysterectomy, which is right now we're looking for a surgeon for her that's even willing to do that, which of course they are. they do exist. I'm not saying if you know people are going to be like, I know someone totally. they exist. I'm so glad, but they're not the norm, right. And so often they kind of, you know, happen afterwards where you're like, oh, I had a hysterectomy and guess what? It didn't actually help that much. And so now we're going back in to have these more invasive pelvic surgeries. And, and I, again, I feel like we talk about this in relationship to birth and childbearing. I feel like this is very much in the ethos. We're in this moment of, you know, home birth resurgence and physiological birth courses and, you know, and absolutely like there are you know women in our community i mean definitely emily and yolanda who who are like moving this conversation forward over the last five years and many others but the conversation i don't feel like that is being moved forward is how that all relates and how it is just as dire in all of our other women's health concerns Mm -hmm. right and how having the same feminist backbone For our pelvic health is required in the same way that it is for birth. I think it's really easy to say, oh, look, see how harmful this all is for women. See what this is doing to women. This is clearly anti feminist. But the way you treat your UTIs, oh, no, that's actually fine, right? That doesn't have anything to do with sort of anti feminist culture or misogynistic care. And I would argue it absolutely does, right? And just due to the outcomes, due to our poor, like deplorable pelvic health outcomes. How many times would you Google? You know, like oh, I have repetitive yeast infections, and it's just like, yeah, that just happens to some women. You're probably eating too much bread. Like what? You know, like it's it's all it's all wrapped up, and this is really what my interest is is sort of bringing our feminist liberation movement to our pelvic health, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is a story I feel like that's warrant's being told, so. And then how this all wraps into the to our to like the trans rights agenda, right? Which I think is actually you know more. Um, I think it's more looped in than we might even uh, you know see on face value. One example, right, would be Roe Wade was recently overturned, and now you know as someone and I just know you are as well, someone who is sort of interested and you know in facilitating and assisting women in their you know their entire care of their reproductive health outside of the medical paradigm right? The, you know, I made a post and this was very, you know, sort of inflammatory that, you know, it was really our liberal politics that set the stage for the overturning of Roe v. Wade, right? And if we're looking back into the feminist movement that, you know, I definitely learned from books like Our Bodies, Ourselves and, uh, you know, and um, like the Cambridge Women's Health Alliance, I live in Boston now, right? And these are, organizations that were based in that sort of second wave feminism era that were entirely geared towards women understanding and caring for their bodies and caring for them outside the medical paradigm and with other women that were based on we can map our own genitalia we can understand our own pelvic health we can assess ourselves and we can do these things for each other and we don't actually need anybody to help us and that was the Wave, right? That was the sort of the movement and the cultural ethos in many ways for both Black and white second wave feminists that brought the rise of even Roe v. Wade being brought to the Supreme Court. Like that was the feminist backbone of the moment that allowed that to then elevate to national politics. And so, therefore, it is not surprising to me that in the wake of our current, you know, last political decade, where there's an entire de emphasis of the correlation between women's bodies and women's rights, where that has been entirely split, where now there is no such thing as a a female body and how that relates to rights, as though that didn't therefore pave the way for the political moment of having Roe v. Wade overturned. Just like it's the exact opposite that paved the way that connection that allowed it to be elevated in the first place. It's that disconnection that I personally think is a huge component of why now, right? And if we're looking at, you know, what is going on, like in sort of from a political perspective, like, you know, there has been, you know, political and religious um, opposition to pregnancy termination forever, right? Like really, even the concept of it came out of, you know, sort of a, um, you know, comes from this sort of conservative and often, you know, religious affiliated uh, value system. And that isn't new. Right, so what has changed? Like, what has actually shifted? And you know, and I know that this might not seem to be like on face value, where it's like, well, we still see the liberal left or largely su- are like the ones who are supporting pregnancy uh, termination rights. And while that is true, I mean, the obliteration that's also happening on the ha- on behalf of our like American leftist politics of female sex-based rights. It's like you're talking on two sides of your mouth, right? It doesn't yeah. there isn't actually a cohesive front. Mm-hmm. And not that I, you know, am here to do any sort of political advocacy necessarily, but the um, how wrapped up our health is and our women's health is not just on behalf of pregnancy and also just on the behalf of pregnancy termination with whatever's going on culturally and the views that we have about women. Right. They are always inextricable. And this goes for, this extends absolutely into our natural health communities and outside of just pregnancy and pregnancy termination, but into everything that has to do with our female bodies and our sexual and reproductive health. And even just our public health more broadly, thinking about things like urinary tract infections, or I was assisting you with um, what they had to do with your bladder, right? Mm-hmm. And like so much of what you had been told about your bladder, right? Uh oh, like the water. Oh my God, the water consumption. This is a huge oh one. Oh my gosh. Women with that just struggle so profoundly with I have to pee all the time. I feel like I can't hold my bladder. I feel like I have a small bladder. I really try and stay hydrated, blah, 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 blah. And women who are drinking a ton of liquid. And where does that even come from? Like this concept of drinking tons of water. And even if you are mineral mineralizing and restructuring your water, blah, blah, blah. Fine, great, love that. Continue but the concept of just drinking as opposed to eating the idea that like water and water consumption is perpetuated as like the primary thing for weight loss and that women are always being told to lose weight it doesn't matter what size you are right and specifically me being in like a like you know like a i teach like fitness classes it's not really as much anymore but i definitely you know came up in the, as a professional in that particular industry right the the subtext of our you know, have smoothies, have matcha lattes with collagen, and drink structured water, there is a not so below the surface of, you know, a message that's not so far below that, that is drink, don't eat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And is limit calories, and that is flush out the system. And, and then you add that with like a postural, you know, uh, setup or postural structure where you're putting constant pressure pressure on your bladder. And then a lack of even understanding about how the bladder functions to begin with, because no one's even telling us about the unique innervation of the female bladder and how that's actually different from the male bladder and why it's different from the male bladder. And it's different because when we are pregnant, our babies are growing in our wombs and they're putting pressure on the bladder in a way that never exists in the male body. So therefore we have different innervation that can accommodate that specific physiological capacity of female bodies. Right. And then we come up and like all of that then contributes to when we have, you know, approximately a 50 percent incontinence rate at some degree. Right. Mm -hmm. 50 percent of women after uh, the age of 50 are having some degree of bladder leakage. Mm -hmm. Right. And if, if you are wondering, you're like, where are you getting these statistics? Just ask the women in your life. Ask the mothers over 50. Right. If they've ever in their course of their you know adult life or even just women who haven't had children, if they ever laugh and feed their pants. Do you ever hear men saying that? I laugh so hard I feed myself? Literally no. never. never. Literally never, right? It's like just- consider- I laugh so hard I feed like, This is hysterical. Like, I've never heard a man say that, right? Because we have different structural anatomy, right? And we need to support
0: <laughs> it. And guess what? Women
1: haven't- you know and even if we think back and i know it's confusing if we look historically cuz we're in the midst of sort of corseted culture right like you know our current restrictive culture restrictive clothing culture which
0: i got to say leggings
1: i'm sorry I'm right there with you
0: yeah i it's You'll not good for lymph it's not good for posture they're not the binding like the sk- you know the kardashian phenomena of like the skims the um what were they called the spanks yeah
1: and i got to say like I am recovering from loving them. You know what I mean? Like I wore like form fitting, like hold you in leggings and skin tight sports bras every day for a decade, Mm -hmm. right? And I still now, you know what I mean? Like, what does it even mean for me to buy jeans that don't do that? I just bought a pair of jeans and I'm like, oh, these are two sizes bigger and I can fit in and look like the fitness model in the size, you know, four or six jeans. But if I don't want them actually putting pressure on my womb and like zipped up and like nipped in in my waist in a way that, you know, looks really flattering, then I'm wearing jeans that are an eight or a 10. I haven't actually changed size that much, right? I'm just, you know, trying to be accommodating to the reality of my female physiology, right? And trust me, I still wear high waisted jeans. I still wear leggings. I'm like the rest of us, but I don't wear skin tight sports bras anymore, which is putting so much pressure Right on the posterior diaphragm and um, mm-hmm. like you know the lungs and the, mm-hmm. and the pelvic floor and all the way down the chain, but um, yeah. I mean, I think that I just to sort of circle back to like the bladder piece and the liquid consumption and like all these women. Oh, okay. What I was sharing before, sorry, caught the thread back was just ask women in your lives, yeah. like how many of them have actually struggled with some degree of bladder incontinence? I'm talking sneezing and leaking, I'm talking laughing and um, peeing, I'm talking about, you know, leaking during pregnancy or postpartum, right? Or, you know, a little bit of bulging, or my vagina feels weird or different, or I have like this chronic constipation, or I struggle with painful sex, or I, I, I know that, you know, I, I like can't always orgasm, or I can't do it regularly or frequently. And like, These just become normalized parts of the female experience as opposed to directly related to poor pelvic health function. And -hmm. if we're wondering why we have poor pelvic health function, well, no one's ever emphasizing our women's health overall, right? And especially we're being told through, you know, through the media and through politics more broadly that it is not possible, right? That like, oh, that just happens when you have a baby. Or yes, some women just can't. Yeah, it's just part of life. And the idea that that's even considered to be part of life is so profoundly anti-feminist, is so profoundly anti-woman, and also not physiologically based, right? It's um, it's staggering and infuriating, right? And so this is so much of the work that I do is just education, and then of course I run a well-woman care clinic. I see women both in person and virtually all over the world for you know a variety of different public health concerns. I attend births of the women in my community and have done that for the last five years. Right. And then I teach. I just led the public health intensive, which was amazing. And we had women like nurse practitioners, licensed midwives for over a decade coming and learning about actual sexual anatomy and function in a way that they, through all of their years of education, had never actually come across that information, which Mm -hmm. is staggering. Right. This information is well, it's I mean, it's maybe more infuriating and maybe staggering, it seems, is maybe not quite the right word because of just how common it actually is. Right. I'm not quite sure where if you didn't specifically seek out this information and and yeah. think critically and really look for, you know, where women in our worlds are or where women in the world are having, you know, better success. It's usually outside of the, you know, of our medical paradigm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in New York City, where, you know, we're supposed to have supposedly supposed to have everything. I there was one woman who was known for pelvic health. She was a she was a pelvic health uh, pelvic floor therapist. And I saw her and she was amazing. And she, you know, the information she gave me years ago, like I still, you know, carried with me. But I, I think it maybe had one follow-up session. But yeah, the, the kind of the narrative that I'm just someone who pees a lot. I'm just someone who pees a lot. And she was the one who was like, no, you're ju- your bladder is working perfectly. You're consuming so much liquid, so much caffeine, and it's working just as it's designed to release all the freaking liquid that you're putting in it. And then when you and I work together, it was like really good uh, reminder and more information and plus the exercises. I, I really appreciate what you said about the the message below like the smoothies the the drinks the the liquid like uh the frothy beverage like all like the message below is yeah like if you drink more of these you're going to eat less and I didn't realize like consciously until our sessions that first of all I knew that I knew I know that water is not the best for hydration like I was on that tip but I was unintentionally still consuming diuretics like I thought oh, I'm drinking like all these herbal teas. Like, of course they're hydrating, but I had not made the distinction between hydrating liquids and detoxing, dehydrating liquids. Um, and so when you, when you said it again, like all of, all of it was like, oh, of course, yes, this makes so much sense, but just the gaps in knowledge were still so, so vast. And, and it really has helped me so much. And um, in the trans, the literal translation of like, I use, I like pee less. Um, I'm really working on the breathing and like untucking oh, the tongue. I haven't talked to you about this. Love to hear Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I still have, I, okay. The exercises i still need to get in a routine on. I'm, I'm working on those, but, but I think so. I think even women listening to this episode, like there's so many tidbits just of information, like the awareness is the first part of it, getting the kind of the one-on-one education that, that you're kind of giving a taste of, you know, in, in this episode. Oh, I also had a story that I just like, wasn't hungry in the morning because I was drinking a massive amount of liquid every morning, <laughs> which is so funny. Like all my friends, like so many of my friends are like, I'm just not hungry in the morning. Like I don't eat breakfast. I'm like, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Cause like, I thought I was like that too. And then I realized I was just consuming mass amounts of, you know, um, of caffeine in the morning, um, or even one cup on an empty stomach, you know, was enough to suppress my appetite. Um, it's all it takes. Like, and I okay. love,
1: I mean, I love matcha. You've really deepened my love for matcha <laughs> <laughs> part of our, you know, and like, I will totally, and just like drink tea and, or drink, you know, I try not to drink coffee though. I would love to cause, cause but like, you know, and then I don't have to eat until 11 o'clock if I do that. And then add that I like go to the gym, like, you know what I mean? It's how common is it that women wake up, they make like a frothy beverage with a little bit of collagen in it and then like go work out. And that's like lorded as like the prime morning routine. Right. And cool. That might work for some, but if we're thinking more sort of longevity, long-term metabolic health, how your metabolic health is related to your public health, how if you're having you know, and even just how everything's connected, right? And what that looks like in your cycles and then what your cycles are doing to you structurally, how your structure is affecting your cycles back and forth and how it all is also, you know, if we're starting the day, and this is just classic, we start the day with a diuretic. We start the day with, um, you know, liquid in the body as opposed to food. So we're not actually jumpstarting our full digestive capacity, which of course comes to fruition with movement in the pelvis. I can't overstate this how many women come to me saying, oh, I've tried, you know, I've tried everything and I, or, and I have painful sex and blah, blah, blah. And then it like comes up later that they have, you know, Crohn's or IBS or have all these, which I I get that those also exist from a sort of autoimmune perspective, which that's a whole other thing that we're not going to talk about today. I do have a lot of thoughts on that though. Um, but the, you know, the idea that, You've tried everything for your digestive health, and it always comes up as like second, mm, yes, before like, mm-hmm. pelvic stuff. And then I'm also like, but are you literally not eating one? You're not like eating enough food. That's a huge one. Or two, the like the actual arrangement, like digestion is a manual process. I want to put this on a fucking billboard, right? Digestion is a manual process. So is elimination, right? They require movement in our fascia, and movement of our smooth muscle tissue, which is directly related to our hormonal blueprint and how our smooth muscle tissue contracts or doesn't. It's also directly related to our synovial fluid and our lymphatic fluid. And the primary lymphatic cistern, it's the largest lymph node in the body, sits in the pelvic bowl, right? And mm. so that manual process, if we're pressing it in from our leggings, sucking it in by m- minimizing the movement of the diaphragm, not breathing deeply, right? So we're not actually adding that sort of pumping action, not that the lungs are a pump, but that sort of mobilizing action from the top. And then we're stuck, stuck, stuck in our pelvic floors because we're not breathing and we're tucking our tailbone all the time. And then we wonder why the full movement capacity that's required to move food and waste material through the digestive tract is affected. Mm. It's crazy to me, right? This manual process needs to be supported. And so often we then, you know, see women with these digestive issues or chronic constipation and we're never addressing, we're never looking at this from a structural perspective. It's all, what foods can you cut out? So how much smaller can you be, right? How much less can you eat, right? And then or supplements or supplements. Oh my gosh. And then just getting back to this prime example. So this woman who, you know, drinks her frothy beverage and like goes to the gym and works out has is like, you know, taking diuretics has a minimal calorie intake and like does all the good workouts. Right. And guess what? Then I, then, you know, I see her for, maybe she's having painful sex. Maybe she struggles with her constipation, or maybe she's having prolapse symptoms after her first baby, but she's done everything right. She's eaten all the pro metabolic food. She's done the workout. She did all the preparation work, but it's all has this subtext of how can you work out more? be skinnier and be doing actions that are directly related to flattening the belly and shrinking the waist, which that action flattening the belly and shrinking the waist and how pervasive that is in female fitness culture is mm-hmm. directly contraindicated to female pelvic function. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so, Unsurprisingly, when the
0: rubber hits the road, we're seeing p- female pelvic health dysfunction. Right, right. And, and-, and you're not suggesting like normalizing like inflammation and bloat, because also a lot of of that lower belly uh, expansion that like I I used to complain about. And so many women I know who like were at, at the peak of like our, you know, like gut issues is there's just like this massive distension that's like an inflammatory, like below, like we're not talking about letting, like normalizing that you're talking about the distinction between like the curve of the body and the belly. Once you untuck, you know, the tailbone and don't have those constricting clothes on and aren't, like tar- like doing exercises exercises that try to flatten that part um, because even what you're saying okay, even if that part of the body is like as flat as it can be with the pelvic tilt it can't be flat it always has to be curved that's the design and I mean I know you mentioned
1: earlier you said like I just told to tuck in the ribs which I actually agree with that particular cue because most of us are taught to belly breathe and not breathe in our back. And so often when we draw the ribs down, we can then breathe into our posterior diaphragm, Mm -hmm. which helps us reestablish our spinal curves, including our thoracic curve, which should go out and our lumbar curve, which should curve in and our cervical curve, which should curve out, right? But your example, it's like that action was accomplished largely through on the inhale, right? You in like, even the term you suck in, right? Right. You're sucking in air, right? So like, right. And as you do that, you're using the muscles to compress the the whole trunk canister, right? So as you're inflating, right? This is what's crazy. As you're inflating the lungs, right? So filling like filling the lung balloons right? Um, They're not really, think of them more like sponges. They're not vacant like balloons. Like the bladder is more like a balloon, but the lungs are more like a sponge where they like absorb and fill. But even that, even just shifting the way we think about them, knowing that the lungs are more sponge-like, it reminds you that like, oh, they're dense. Like they're not these like puffy, fluffy balloons, right? They're there to really expand and press open in the trunk. And if you are doing that so telling the lungs to expand while then also telling all of the musculature sort of in the waist in the upper abdomen to contract and in the lower abdomen you're increasing pressure right because you're putting the the you know you're inhaling oxygen and you know inhaling air into the lungs while then pressing on the body from the muscles in the outside yeah. And that increase of pressure in the canister is then what causes your pelvic floor to move down and all of your pelvic organs to descend because they have to go somewhere right and how different that is versus the lungs coming down on the exhale, right? So as you empty, right, you're creating this contraction that allows everything to lift up, right? And I just want to be putting out some, some information because it can be confusing. Yeah. And you were saying like, oh, um, uh, you were saying like, oh, this, uh, you know, I'm just told to like suck in and draw my ribs down. And it's like that combo, they like suck in and ribs down as opposed to, I was taught to breathe in a way that created movement in my whole trunk canister from, you know, no, essentially- like, They did not teach that. Helmet.
0: They did not oh. teach that in ballet school, <laughs> no,
1: they don't teach that in ballet school they I didn't teach that and like how much yoga teacher training have i done and like, and like
0: at such a crucial time of development too, like we are being like drilled like this this is being drilled in when like we are like you know maybe not even bleeding yet, about to have our first bleed. I mean, the other thing that I thought of when when I was like trying to remember that feeling of the sucking combined with the tuck is like. I just felt tension in my chest and my throat. And then I'm like, oh, right. If I'm out in public doing that all the time, I'm actually never relaxed. And I'm actually never open. And I'm actually never ready to like really like speak. Like when do you... I I don't know like uh, yeah I'm just having this thoughts like okay well this is totally this must be related to like silencing and like not speaking up if we're constantly like holding in like there's this there's this action of everything being like tight and held in and um constricted and so of course that's gonna have yeah contained small demure visually appealing
1: and you know I'm not You know, I don't know if I can really say that like, yeah, the constriction of the low belly, you know, has an effect on women's ability to like speak out. I don't know if I can say that. But from a physiological perspective, I can absolutely, you know, and I'm also really into like tongue tie posture, which is like there's that's a whole other sort of discussion. But I definitely know that the structure and any pressure that's put here on the mouth and th- like in the mouth and throat. And if you're feeling that all the way up the system, that that has a last- lasting effect mm-hmm. and specifically it has a lasting effect on our public health, right? So I, when I see women that come to me for prolapse one of the first things that we sort of address and look at structurally is like, how how's your head posture and how's your tongue posture, right? What's going on at the top of the chain because the top of the chain influences the bottom of the chain. Right. So from that perspective, if you're like, oh, wow, even just doing this physiologically creates a restriction of the fascia, the movement in my, you know, sort of up, up the fascial chain, like that, I think is an interesting point to make. Mm. And I, yeah, I mean, I, there's so many other things that get wrapped up in here. I'm also very, wait, maybe that's a little off topic. Well, I mean, I'll just say this anyway, like the, I'm very, you know, interested right now, if women approximately one in four have some degree of thyroid dysfunction, Mm. right? And like, if we think of our thyroid as our third ovary, I really like sort of having that image in terms of how it relates to our overall hormonal and pelvic health and our overall sort of endocrine health. And you know, I think the restriction personally in our like tongue tie culture, right, where we have a lot of women that are having uh, sort of different structural and midline defects, that's naturally putting more pressure on the thyroid and putting more pressure, wow. on the pub, right? It's putting pressure all the way down. I see far more with women who have tongue ties,
0: which like, that's, I think, a shocking thing that I don't really oh have. Oh my much. gosh. Wait, yeah. now I'm like all of a sudden making connections with like my clients who have both. Whoa. Yes. Way oh my gosh.
1: Way wow. And if we think uh, of what's happening structurally, you can't actually have the full movement of the pelvic floor due to the restriction, right? And then I also, I know, and I don't see there's no data on this. No one's tracking tongue tie relationship to prolapse and tongue tie relationship to thyroid dysfunction,
0: but it makes sense to me. Anecdotally, yeah. And, and anecdotally, and education. I see, yeah. yeah. I see
1: it all the time. And these all so often circle back to just a broader question in women's health, right? Where are we? Like if we are seeing, you know, one in two women experience some degree of prolapse, one in four women in America experiencing some degree of thyroid dysfunction, right? And how this all, how, in my opinion, they all also have a structural component, right? And I would say maybe not even a structural underpinning, but a structural overtone, right? Mm-hmm. But then that become, but then we're just taught over and over again, that not only is our structure, like the last thing that anybody's going to tell us about, right? It's like, by it's like nowhere when we're learning about our holistic health, we're learning about food. We're learning about clean eating. We're learning about glyphosate. We're learning about homeopathy. We're learning about, we're nowhere. Are we learning about, you know, the structure and arrangement of our pelvic bones compared to male, compared to male anatomy. Like that's not in the a broader holistic health culture. Right. I do see absolutely in these main mainstream, major, major women's health concerns. I see a structural component, mm-hmm. right? And that structural component is being directly sort of advertised and uh, encouraged largely by our fitness industry. Right. And by what we're told and how, like what we're told to do and how we're told to look, you know, that's what I really want to get the word out about. That's really what I really want women to be thinking about and examining is like, does it feel comfortable to you? And what that actually means, it's like, do I feel more comfortable in skin tight leggings than I do in something that's more spacious. Right. And like, for me, the answer for a long time was like, absolutely. I do. And then I really had to look into like, well, why is that? And like, what does comfort mean to me? And I'm like, okay, well, I feel more comfortable, honestly, because I like look slimmer. Yeah. Right. And as a woman who is like, and even now, right. I'm like in, you know, I have a public facing profile. I know you were saying my strength training, your strength training routine is like, not quite, where it, you want it to be, I have a strength training course. It's all about just like a sort of greatest hits of ways to strengthen your female pelvic structure for overall better health and function. Right. So like I do all this stuff and still I'm like, well, it just looks better or sells better if I do it in skin tight leggings and a crop top. And so okay. what do, do I feel more comfortable there? And what does that mean? I think this is just all, you know, I'm not to say that there's a right way to go about that but i want it to be in our consciousness and i want this to be coming up for healing and i want it to be coming up for consideration um and i want us to really be connecting sort of this concept of the ideal female body and the male gaze and our feminist liberation
0: and its direct repercussions on our long-term public health and sovereignty Oh, that's so amazing. I'm so excited for your, your course. I'm gonna um, have in the show notes for women to learn more and how to work with you. Um I love how much you know about women's pelvic health. And um I so enjoyed, yeah, just learning even more from you than I had previously. And yeah, thank you so much, Adelaide. And um, I love you. I
1: love you too. And I just do want to share just one more thing sort of about my work if women are listening. So I work with women one-on-one with a variety of public health concerns, really, whatever it is. And especially if you've like been to the gyno or been to PT or tried to manage it yourself, or it's something you don't feel comfortable telling other people about, right? Like I, um, you know, I hear it. I feel like I've heard it all. And I have personally been through a lot of it myself. And so I see women and help you and help women one-on-one through their sort of public health journey. Mm-hmm. I uh, will have other things that are up in terms of ways to work with me in a group and to be learning more about your public health, both from whether you work with women on a professional capacity or whether you just work with women for, or just like work with your own body I also um, attend births outside the system and I'm relocating from Boston to North Carolina. So if you are having a baby and, or recovering from having a baby or preparing from having a baby and want that type of support that is really physiologically based. And then I um, do have a variety of courses, online courses and webinars on everything from prolapse to how to have better orgasms to how to heal your, you know, your bladder incontinence to how to just revamp your public health overall. So, and as I said, I have a strength training course and the entire perspective is the same things that you can know and that you can fix, right? Mm-hmm. Everything is oriented towards improving and deepening your knowledge so that you can address what's going on because this information is not proprietary, but it has been withheld, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of culturally and more broadly but you are the woman who can really heal and fix and support your health. And this information is there to really help you along that trajectory. Thank you so much, Isabella. I love your work. I love your podcast. And I just love that you are dedicated to bringing the feminist message out to the world in all of these different ways. So thank you so much.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or family member who needs to hear this content. And if you do share it on social media don't forget to follow and tag me at whose body is it So until next time